And we're back with another Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. Uh, I am Creek, and with me is Maria Jose Munita and Mario Sikora, two wonderful people in their own right. Today, we, we're, it's, we're just going to rant. What is, um, that? what is it? What is that even? In their own, in their own right? That I'm not uh, an, your appendix, Mario. That's what that means. <laughs> yeah, and, okay. I'm not just an extension of you, but I'm a person in my own right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? The whole universe Creek? is an extension of me. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I'm not. Well, okay, that's another discussion. Um, today we're so a lot of our episodes have been talking about how to use the Enneagram, and today we're going to be focusing on how not to use or the potential limitations of the Enneagram, and maybe just some things that we've seen that uh, we'd like to suggest some caution and critical thinking on. So, Mario. Or actually, MJ. Yeah, we'll let's start let's, with MJ. Let's, let's let my appendix talk here. <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing is that you can you can live without it. I don't think you can, Mario. <laughs> but so we will need to an extension could be a better thing. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So MJ, <laughs> tell tell us like what are some some things that you've noticed recently? Well, I've been using the Enneagram for a long time now, and. I've seen several things that are quite interesting, almost ridiculous in terms of how to use the Enneagram. Some people try to explain everything. I remember having reading a book where they touched on things from cooking to the stars. And I just think that overall, the Enneagram is not a map that explains everything. And that would be my first mm. word of caution. Wow. Yeah, so so there's that quote from, uh, I think it's Uspensky, who, mm. you know, said yeah. that Gurdjieff said that, you know, for the person who truly understands the Enneagram, he can get rid of all the books and all the libraries because to understand the Enneagram and understand everything. And uh, that's just nonsense, right? I mean... Um, the, the Enneagram is a really powerful tool with lots of great uses, um, but no tool does everything. But it is just a tool. Mm. Um, you know, you can do a lot with a hammer, but mm -hmm. sometimes you end up doing things with a hammer that are better done with a saw or a screwdriver or a wrench. And you might get the job done, but you make a mess. Right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, a good carpenter uses the right tools. And I think we need to do the same thing with the Enneagram. Um, mm -hmm. to recognize what its potential uses are and what its limitations are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, there is the, there's the Enneagram of personality, right? That's what most people are familiar with. And then you have all these other Enneagons. Thoughts on that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what is that, 109 or something like yeah. that? Uh, I, I, I can't remember 109. 108. Adam Marie Jose, you want to go first? No, 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 go ahead. Mm -hmm. So, which is, I guess, 10 times 9. Huh? So, that's interesting. Um, yeah. You know, uh, no, it's not yeah. 10 times 9. Mm -mm. It's uh, 12 times 9. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a long time since second grade math. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know all of uh, Echazo's 108 Enneagrams. Uh, so, I don't know, you know, what their usefulness are. I think when, it, you know, when we're talking about the Enneagram of personality, there are, you know, different Enneagons, Enneagrams that are useful. There's the vices, the virtues, right? They were included among those 108. 
Um, I, I think for me, the distinction is between the Enneagram of personality and the Enneagram as a process model, right? And the, the that's how Gurdjieff used it as a model of tracking processes and so forth. Um, a guy named uh, Blake, A.G.E. Blake, wrote a book called The Intelligent Enneagram some years ago. He's a, I think a British management consultant that talked about how to use the Enneagram as a process model in organizations. I look at that stuff and I think, man, oh man, this is just needlessly complicated and useless, hmm. quite frankly. You know, I, there's a, people who disagree with me and find great utility in it. I still don't get what it is after 30 years of hmm. trying to figure it out. Um, Mario, maybe you're just not smart enough. I, that, well, that could be, right? I, yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, that's... You know, I'm a limited <laughs> human being. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, I, I, so for me, the question is always, okay, how do I apply this? How do I apply it quickly? How do I apply it practically? And how do I apply it as simply as possible? And in my, you know, experience of, you know, thinking about the Enneagram as a process model, it's an interesting, you know, idea, mm. but I don't, I just don't know what to do with it. And I've never seen anybody, anybody, anybody ever really apply it in any practical way. So, mm. And if somebody has done that, I'd be happy to see it. I, I want to just clarify that it is a very particular thing what you're talking about here, like the Enneagram as a process model. Mm. Doesn't mean that we cannot apply the Enneagram in processes of growth and think, things like that. Sure. That's a different story. Mm. Here, there's a particular description of the Enneagram as a process model that doesn't make sense to us. And we can apply it for growth because one of the other things that I think are misuses is that people say, I did the Enneagram or kind of it, like if it was a once a one-off thing and what they're talking there, it's usually taking a test and getting a result mm. and they think they're done. I think that's not necessarily a misuse, but a misunderstanding of what the Enneagram mm. is about. It's the starting point Although taking a test should not be, <laughs> uh, not even the starting point. I think it's just one thing you can do to get to Familiar. get an understanding of what your type is. Yeah. But yeah. doing the Enneagram, I think I just cringe every time I hear it <laughs> that way. To come back to, I mean, I think I've said this on, on the podcast before, but may okay, let's just assume that maybe there is something to... The process enneagram. The it, maybe it is complicated, right? May, but maybe it is really helpful once you understand it. Whatever, right? But what we're looking for here is what are the big stones that you can move and not not worry about all the little complicated pe uh, pebbles here or there, right? So I think about exercising where there's you can go so far into like working on your fascia, working on this mobility, that mobility, this exercise, like strengthening all these tiny little muscles. But if you aren't actually doing squats, deadlifts, that sort of thing, like you're just wasting so much time, like just finding all the little nuances here or there when you're missing like the, the, the biggest thing that you sh that is going to give you the biggest bang for your buck yeah. and I think that's what we keep coming back to is it's like 
Maybe, maybe it's helpful for somebody, but for the vast majority of people, they're not doing squats. They're like doing pinky raises because they want their pinky to be stronger or whatever, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, so there's there's two almost contradictory problems, okay? And it is a tendency to overcomplicate, right? To, to you know, to, you know, to use the weightlifting thing to focus on doing tricep extensions, but never do bench presses, never do squats, never do deadlifts, et cetera, right? And so you're working on little details, but you're missing the opportunity for real growth by not doing the, the big things. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's getting too granular and missing the simple but most important things. The other thing is, is becoming too simplistic. Okay, so you have these sort of contradictory problems, okay, overcomplicating it and oversimplifying it. Mm -hmm. And you don't know when you're straying into either of those territory if you really don't know the system, right? If you don't have those hours and hours and hours in the gym doing squats and bench presses and, and, you know, deadlifts, right? So, So this is the challenge of the Enneagram. That because it seems really simple when you first encounter it, oh, I did my Enneagram and I found out I'm a two and I love everybody, blah, blah, blah. It seems really simple and really easy. And then the Dunning-Kruger effect kicks in, right? This idea that, you know, people who don't really know what they're talking about have a tendency to think that they know what they're talking about. Very human tendency. So they start spouting all this stuff. And this leads us into some of the misuses. Okay. So for example, you're working in the corporate world for 25 years using RAM. I have continually been having people ask me, well, what, what personality type should I hire for this role? Or what personality type should I hire for that role? And I said, that's just the wrong question. Right. Because our Enneagram type doesn't tell us what we will be good at professionally doesn't tell us who will be successful in a particular role. It tells us that no matter who we are or what we're doing, when we start to struggle, it'll probably be for some very specific reason. Mm. Okay? And my reasons will be different from Maria Jose's and, you know, which will be different from yours because we're starting from a different preferred strategy okay? and we fall into different traps because of it. So, mm-hmm. I think if we if we start off by talking about misapplications of Enneagram, that's a good one, right? Assuming that I should hire a particular personality type to be on my team. Oh, you know what? We don't have enough sevens around here. Let's get some more sevens. Hmm. It's just stupid, right? You need to find people who actually know how to do the job, right? And who have the capabilities because people of any personality type can be successful in almost any role. I've seen it over and over and over again. Uh, I, I would only add, I totally agree, that you can you hire the person because they have the skills that you need for that role. And then whatever they're missing, because when we're talking about we need a seven, it is something very specific that we have in mind that that team or that company needs. And that we can provide through setting up mechanisms that help with those things it doesn't have to be a person it has to be 
we just need to make sure that we're taking care of that, that we're addressing that, that we're providing that's, that that's needed in some way, but not necessarily hiring someone. Yeah. For just to, to run off of that example of a seven, so to Rio's point, well, what are we saying when we say we need a seven? Well, are we saying that we need somebody to remind us of the opportunities? Okay. Well, no, we don't need that. We need a process for reminding ourselves of the opportunity. Okay. So we put a we put a, a you know an exercise at the end of our session and say, okay, what's the bright side to all of this? Boom. I don't need a seven for that. Okay. Hmm. So to look for a seven to fulfill that role. You know, they may not be competent, right? In, in sure. what the job is. Okay, so so you want to avoid that. I'm just going to kind of play devil's advocate. I, I think what what could be said here is, I, I guess we are addressing it. Is we're looking for a um, someone who's skilled in a particular area, or whose natural inclination is striving to feel excited or whatever. Right? We want a more vibrant workplace and like if i think through if i think through um like social situations that i'm in the general affect of the group like it it's it's like a math equation if depending on what we're doing and where we're going like i'm going to invite particular people right because of their particular affect that is shaped by their strategy on some level Correct me if I'm wrong, but that makes sense to me. And then you also have like the instinctual bias going along with that as well. So where, so with that level of, there is an affect to the strategy, to the instinctual subtype bias combination. Where's that line? Obviously a seven doesn't equal skill, but it does represent an affect that could be desired. So, so let me ask you this, Creed, because the, the example that we're operating in, in here for the moment is organizational design and group design to accomplish things. So you're a musician, okay? And mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're pretty much a, I, I believe, a kind of a singular, you know, solo artist. Right. But if you're putting a band together and you need a drummer, what are you mm. looking for? Yeah, a skilled drummer. There you go, right? Yeah. So it, it doesn't matter. What is it? You, you know, you don't say, you know what? We need more fun on the road. So let's get a seven drummer. Okay. No, you want to find the best drummer. Hmm. Now, once he's in the band, it helps to know what his Enneagram type is. Because now, you know, the four or five or six of you have to do a tour and you have to interact with each other. And you're going mm-hmm. to get on each other's nerves and you're going to make, have these problems. So now it helps you to know what is this personality style that I'm interacting with? How can I understand his values so I can better interact with him? Mm. Right. But, and the same thing applies to companies, right? I mean, they're there to, you know, to provide a service to make money. Okay. Um, you know, and, and I know my Enneagram friends get all worked up about that, but you know what? Publicly traded company, I got, st- you know, I hold stock in these companies in my, you know, my investment accounts. Okay. I want them to make money. Okay. Because I'm going to retire on that and so forth. Okay. And that's not the only thing they have to do, but that's what they're there for. They're there to perform. And if they're not performing, they're going to lose their jobs. 
and rightfully so. So you've got to find somebody who does the job. And then once you have them in place, this is where the Enneagram comes in. This is the right use of the Enneagram is to say, ah, we've got these people on this team. Let's understand them and where they're coming from so that we can all work together more effectively. Yeah. And if you're on a tour and the drummer is really great, but has no charisma, well, you have to deal with that. You need to compensate by doing certain things and not expect that he develops a huge charisma because probably he or she won't. Mm -hmm. But you can do other things to compensate for it. And so it's like, maybe I'm looking for a really great performer and that right. may coincide with a particular subtype. But what I'm looking for is a good performer. Yeah, and so... And when it comes to performance, there are some things that are innate and there's some things that can be taught, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a believer. Look, as somebody who works with leaders, and this is not necessarily a popular view, but I look at some people and I say, they've got it, right? They've got something okay, that you can't teach, that you can't learn, that you have or you don't. And I think perform a lot of performers are the same way. Right. Mm. You look at actors or musicians or something like that, and they say, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, they've got it. They didn't learn that in a book. They didn't get taught that. Okay. But you can improve on what you have. Okay. So if you're not the most charismatic drummer, for example, you can take some, you know, you can learn how to be more charismatic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's these things, in my view, and it's funny because I was just out in Los Angeles uh, last month and I was talking to some people in the entertainment industry and asking them this question. What is it that separates those people who pop from those people who don't? And they all of them said, don't know what it is, but I know mm -hmm. it when I see it. Right. Some people, it's just <laughs> there's something there. Yeah. yeah. And that's independent of type. It's more likely to be a transmitter. Okay, I will say that. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, or that person is more likely to be a train. But you don't want that kind of charisma, you know, necessarily in your CFO, perhaps, right? Unless it's mm. a, a role that requires wowing, you know, Wall Street for some reason. If it's more likely to be a transmitter. <laughs> yeah. In the entertainment the, industry. In the entertainment industry. Yeah. Sure. Right. Then. Yeah. So I will think the instinctual biases have more. To do than the strategy. To do than yeah. the Enneagram okay. types, the okay. strategy, yes. Okay. Uh, and, and here's the way I'll say it. Okay. Take a role like CFO or operation manufacturing, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You are going to see more preservers in those sort of preserving roles okay? of all different types. Mm -hmm. Now, not every CFO is going to be a preserver, but there will be a disproportionate number of people who are preservers in certain roles mm. okay? and in sales and in entertainment and performance, et cetera. And right? you can mm -hmm. see more transmitters. Just because the their zone of enthusiasm, even if they aren't necessarily skilled in it, it's going to be much easier for them to become skilled in that area because that is their focus of attention. Yeah, there's a selective process. I mean, look, you, you know, you, you look at the NBA and You know, most of the people who make it to the NBA are really tall, right? Mm -hmm. uh, why? Because there's a selection process that's partly, you know, sure. tall people have an advantage. And kids growing up, they're more likely to stay 
playing basketball if they're taller than if they're shorter. Now, again, mm-hmm. there's lots of great shorter basketball players, okay? But there is a kind of funneling process that will happen. And mm-hmm. so the same thing happens around the instinctual biases. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah, so it's not every, but it's a higher, it's disproportionate in different fields, in my experience. Yeah, and talking about hiring, I remember years ago I saw a book written by a guy here in Chile about leadership and team. And he used Instagram, so I was very excited to read what he had to, had to say. And he was describing the types briefly, and there was like a table. And one column of the table gave kind of advice on um, if we should, if you should hire them or not, and for which roles. And there was something like eight, you should never hire them as kind of CEOs because they're all psychopaths or something like that. You know? <laughs> and, but well. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> <laughs> Now, 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 now. (laughs) And there was something about force and, you know, very, very uh, stereotyped, but it's also dangerous, you know. Hmm. And I saw that written there and I got his contact details and went to meet with him and said, why did you do that? Kind of, where did you learn about the Enneagram? And he said, well, I read some books. And I was like, well, it's wrong, (laughs) (laughs) you know. (laughs) This takes us to the simplistic side of the argument, Mm. right, of making these simplistic assessments of, you know, oh, all fives are going to be great researchers. You know, all threes are going to be great at marketing and so forth. You know, all threes are image conscious and, you know, are going to look really polished, et cetera. Well, no. And and, uh, again, this... So just to, to back up here for a second, in preparation for our podcast today, I, I decided to go out on the Internet and just start doing some Googling about the Enneagram right? um, because I'm looking for examples of misuses. And I was actually heartened by some hmm. of the stuff I saw that it wasn't. It took me longer to find really, really bad stuff. Okay. And even the stuff that I thought was overly simplistic, particularly the one person I was watching, was making qualification. So here's what ones like to do at the gym. And ones like to go to the gym and they do this and they do this and they do this and they do this. Now, not all ones are going to do this exactly, but this is what most ones say that they like to do. Well, Mm. first of all, it was just crap, right? Mm. But at least there was this acknowledgement that not everyone will do this. Right. When you see, for example, that Sherwin-Williams has a paint palette for each Enneagram type. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and you go and you look at the paint palette, and, you know, for me, I forget what the colors were, but I looked yeah. at the eight, and I said, yeah, I don't like those colors, you know? So, you know, and you hear what kind of music that eights like, and I listen to it and say, yeah, I don't like, you know. And they what they like in sex. I've heard that, too. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we don't need to go is, into that, but yeah. I've heard about it, and I was kind of shocked 
yeah. when I heard what ones are supposed to like and not like <laughs> and avoid, you know? Just <laughs> there is so much out there that is purely theoretical. And the other thing I see, because one person I was watching said, oh, I took a survey of all the ones, you know, in my group or whatever. And here's what they reported. Well, there's a couple of problems with doing surveys of gathering assumptions about a particular type based on a survey. Number one, you don't know if those people are actually typed correctly. Mm -hmm. Number two, very often what happens in these sort of things, people read an Enneagram book and they say, oh, I'm a type two, right? And I just, you know, I do all this two stuff. And then when somebody asks me, okay, well, you're a type two, what do you like to do? Well, what do I do is I, I repeat back what I just read. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't stop to think for myself. I don't question, is this true for me? I don't question, is it more complex than this? Okay? So we have to be really careful about any assertion we are making about anybody of any Enneagram type. Right. Because the answer is always, well, they do until they don't. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure when this episode is coming out, but Fathoms just did and uh, recorded an episode about prototype, archetype, and stereotype. Mm. And it's along these lines of how the simplistic side of it is just insanely dehumanizing. And, and perhaps like the paint, like for instance, the paint color. Right. I just, I just, I just looked it up. Right. It's, of course, it's cringy, but it is like Enneagram inspired color palettes. Now, that's not saying, that's not saying that every person with that particular type is going to connect with this um, paint color. Right. Yeah. It's, it's focusing on the archetype. Right. The, the general affect of it. Right. Still cringy, still think it's a misuse of sorts, but it's completely different when we're talking about type than we're talking about a person who has a type. And that gets switched up all the time. Um, and it's when we limit other people by their type is a form of dehumanization. I mean, that's it feels like a very strong word, but I, I, I think it is, right? It's Oh, well, it's an accurate word, yeah. Anytime we limit another human based mm. on one label... I think that's wrong. Yeah, and and I think that it might be kind of harmless to draw all sorts of conclusions about the type and say they like these colors or these type of homes. I've seen everything, like these kind of food and but to me the the danger is that if I'm a one and I see the colors and or the food that I'm supposed to like or the kind of houses and I don't resonate with it, I'll say I'm not a one. So Mm, it goes against the possibility of me understanding myself better because you oversimplify the model trying to apply to so many areas that it loses its power. Mm So first of all, I apologize to Sherwin Williams for misrepresenting their, uh, their, their work. Um, but, um, I hear your point on that creek, but my question is, so then what is the value 
of saying, here's Enneagram-inspired paint colors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why would I even bother with something like that? Because these things, you know, and I'm very conscious of seeming like the old guy, you know, standing on his lawn yelling at those rotten kids for, you know, (laughs) hitting their ball into his, his, his yard, you know, and, you know, as somebody who's been in the Enneagram world for a long time, you know, there were those old people waving their mm-hmm. fist at me, you know, 25 years ago. And, you know, and that's kind of a, you know, a, a rite of passage almost. Okay. Not um, so long ago. Actually. No, well, no. And, and you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know, so it's common for the people who've been around in something longer to get frustrated with the lack of understanding of the people who are newer in it. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I don't want this to come across as a cranky sort of, you know, oh, these people are screwed up or something. Yeah. Kids these days. Kids these days. Yeah. And then they're <laughs> rap music, you know, I mean, you know, so, you know, so, and they're tech talks. Uh, and they're TikTok. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so, but it's important to point out that okay, we have to be careful with some of these assertions and we have Mm -hmm. to have, I was just reading something. I'm reading a great book called, uh, how do we know ourselves by, uh, David Meyer. And he talks about the importance of both conviction and humility Mm -hmm. that we have to have conviction. We have to stand for something. We have to believe something. We have to assert it. You were born with the first one. I was born. Oh yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I've got the conviction of 10 people and he says, you know, that we need that. And it's a good point. And, and we need humility. And the first way to start developing humility is to recognize and identify your pride. Okay. You, because otherwise you're, you know, you can't say, okay, I'm going to go out and cultivate humility today. Right. Mm. That's just another form of pride. So you have to start recognizing, oh, okay, do this. So I've done this. You know, I have said, you know, look at that dog, clearly a seven, you know, sort of thing. I have said, you know, oh, threes are going to be better at this than other things and so forth, you know, way back in the, you know, the, the early days. And as you go on, you start to learn that these things are much more complicated and that the best use of the Enneagram uh, correlates with um, a, a, a quote from uh, Kierkegaard that life can only be understood backward, but it must be lived forward. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is the beauty of the Enneagram. It's not a predictive model. I can't say, okay, well, Creek's a four, so he's going to be good at this, or he's going to be good at that, or he's going to respond to this situation this way or that way, because I just don't know. But when I see Creek's reaction to something, or I see my own reaction, when I'm looking backwards to understand, I can say, oh, yeah, there's that fourth thing. There, there, there. Sure. I did that eight thing. Again. Okay. And the better we get at that, at recognizing that, the better we get at heading problematic behaviors off in the past, right? Mm-hmm. I feel this eight thing coming up mm-hmm. because I have learned to look at it. Yeah, I would only add that... It's not like we don't know anything when we know that Creek is a type four right. and we need to be open and hope, I mean, expect anything from him. There's a probability a that he will react in a particular way. Uh, probability is the right word. 
a probability, mm. but it yeah. I cannot predict how he will react. And that probability gives us a lot of tools. It's powerful. We need that. Otherwise, we would go uh, about new situations without any judgments about what could happen. But thinking that I know, it's a trap. It makes me think of art in a lot of ways. Is like I'm thinking, like okay, the paint colors. I've also seen, there's a photographer in Nashville that did this series on, like he did Enneagram types, but in photos, like with lighting and beautiful photos, right? And I guess when we think about art, it's about, it's admitting to the incompletion of this of the fullness of the idea but it's like it's stabbing at something that isn't containable and i think if you're able to approach something like this photo representation of what a f- artistic expression of a four right the energy of a four the affect of a four that i mean we were talking about this on it uh, off air right where it's like some you can just feel there's there's an energy about a particular person could be wrong right but you fours i can smell a mile away because it's just it's a familiar the closed scent. cigarettes that they smoke yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah like the the melancholy just kind of oozes out their ears right uh-huh. um so i i I don't want to discourage like people. I think there's a way to do art that is respecting the affect, the strengths, the general behaviors or giftings of a particular type. But it is we don't we don't go to an art museum and see someone's painting of a bowl of fruit and then limit well if that if if anything else doesn't look like that bowl of fruit, then it's not a bowl of fruit. I think approaching the paint colors, the artistic expressions, the whatever, there's a way to be um, simple in your presentation without it being reductive. Um, but yeah. that takes maturity, I think. And I think it also depends on how what assertions you're making. Sure. Um, yeah. You can say that you're trying to portray the affect of each type, and that's fine. And it's your take on that. Mm-hmm. But if you're saying, this is a one, and this is a two, this is a three, and in a way that people either resonate or identify with that or not, I think mm-hmm. that's tricky. Great example. Ryan O'Neill, Sleeping at Last, the artist, Huge fan, Ryan, if you're listening. I live two hours away. Let's collaborate. But he did a whole nine type thing musically done. And it was every number <laughs> from the perspective of a nine. Because he's a nine. <laughs> and he did the four. I'm like, you got like some of it. There's some great lyrics. He obviously did some some work on like describing the types. He, he did a good job. And many people really connect with their type song and he did a really great job he's a really gifted artist <laughs> but the the four song everyone expects me to love it and i i don't dislike it but it does not convey what i perceive to be 
I need dynamics. And it was just nine the whole way, just even keel. like, ah, ah. And it's like, no, we're, we need like rocket up dynamics, then like go to the basement in like darkness. And then I, I need dynamics. So it's just, that's an example of a beautiful artistic expression that a lot of people connected with, but it's, it's, it's through his lens. And that's, yeah. So I, I'm not familiar with um, uh, his work, so I, I can't comment on it. But I think what you're describing is very common and kind of the crux of the issue in that the temptation when using the Enneagram is to assume that we know or assume that our inferences are correct without testing them, without having actual experience in the field of what really happens mm -hmm. when a, you know, a seven drummer or a four drummer or a five drummer. Sure. And you only know that by seeing hundreds of drummers. Mm -hmm. right? And then you can start to see a pattern. Mm -hmm. But you have to make sure your sample's big enough. And the danger is in jumping to conclusions without doing the work of understanding. And that's okay because you, I mean, a part of it's, it's okay to create a hypothesis mm -hmm. based on little understanding, you know, or a little understanding, I'll say. And, but then you have to have the integrity to recognize that, okay, I haven't gone out and tested whether my idea really works. So, for example, in the business space, I see people who learn about the Enneagram, who've never worked in a corporation, who've never worked in organizations, and think they can take the Enneagram and go in and start using it with a bag load of stereotypes, okay, simplistic assertions, and that that's okay. Mm. And it's not okay. It's unethical. Mm. And so we have to be able to test our ideas, to gain the experience and gradually build up our conviction. Okay? And be able to change our mind. And uh, absolutely to be able to change our mind, right? And, and I want to go back, quick, I, I loved what you said about the art. So you go into a music and... I'm a, I'm a Jackson Pollock fan, right? So I, I love Jackson Pollock. Of course. Work, all right. Um, so, but how many times have you heard somebody look at a Jackson Pollock painting and say, ah, my two-year-old could do that? <laughs> no, your two-year-old can't do that, mm. right? Because Jackson Pollock was a student art and he knew what he was doing when he was flinging that paint around the campus. And he had a point mm. of view that was hard-earned after years of painting and experimentation. Okay? He wasn't just some two-year-old throwing paint against the wall. Mm -hmm. okay? He knew what he was doing. And it's the same thing with the bowl of fruit. Right? A mm -hmm. bowl of fruit by you know Vermeer, perhaps, is different from a bowl of fruit by my Aunt Loretta. 
<laughs> you know, he was doing paint by numbers. Loretta, oh, okay. <laughs> so, Loretta, if you're listening, I love you. But yeah. <laughs> um, make your art, you know, it's got something to be desired. What can yeah. I say? You know, Picasso is the same way. No, you know, you look at latter Picasso and you think, you know, oh, that's you know, that's bizarre, or to unless you know what he's doing. Okay, mm-hmm. and he got there mm-hmm. through hard work. Yeah. So I, I just want to give an example, right? So, you know, I recently encountered, uh, you know, came across this, uh, how your Enneagram type determines your wealth in a blog for a, you know, kind of second tier business magazine. It is somebody who clearly read a few blogs about the Enneagram and then decided to publish something saying how your Enneagram type determines how wealthy you're going to be. And every single word in the article is nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's stereotypes. It's I, 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 I'd have to go through line by line to describe everything that's wrong with it. Okay? Mm-hmm. And yet people are going to see that. So for me, that's an act of irresponsibility. That's an unethical act. It's an act that lacks integrity. Okay. Now we can write it off to ignorance. Okay. But this is, this is the thing as Enneagram users that we have to do is say, I'm going to take the responsibility because this is I'm playing with fire here. Right. And you don't let your kids play with math. You teach them. Yeah. yeah. I was also looking at the internet and. Scary place. Yeah, I know. And there was some, uh, there was a blog about misuses of the Instagram. And I think that we would fall into some of the misuses, our approach, because they call it like the sugar coated Instagram. And. What I understood they mean by that is that the, that Enneagram, that it's not kind of talking about the deep wounds and traumas and, and everything that's wrong about the types. If you're not screwed up, then you're not talking about the Enneagram properly. And I think that's a problem too. When you think that it's all wrong, that you're hiding things, and that your personality is not your true self and you need to get rid of it. Hmm. So that's problematic for me as mm-hmm. well. And we've talked about that several times in other episodes, but sure. that's a problem that I see with the use of the Enneagram. Yeah. What Mario, as I said, reminded me of something I, I, I want to go back on and challenge you a little bit on, on Creek. You know, you said something about, you know, a human being versus a human being having a type or, or something like that, right? Yeah, but our type is just something we call those things that we do, mm-hmm. right? It's not, you know, it, it's it's not a suitcase you're carrying around, change of clothes. It's it's you know, you are the sum total of your experience and your expression, mm-hmm. and part of that is something we call personality. It's that part of you is not the only part of you. Right. Okay. But it is you. Right. So, right. you know, so a type is something we call somebody who has certain characteristics, certain sure. expressions. No, that's a, that's a good distinction. Yeah. Come, coming back to what MJ was saying, I, there's a fascination out there, like what you were saying, MJ, of only the negative or being obsessed with the pain of discovery of how screwed up you are but it often gets like it's a more it's um when you become more fascinated with the explanation of why you're 
quote screwed up versus the exploration and like actual work of <laughs> becoming less screwed up. <laughs> like it, it makes it feel like you are doing work when actually you're not. And I don't, I don't, I don't see that as the ATA approach at all. Like I, you get confronted with the ways in which adaptive maladaptive, right? But it, it's not about bad person, good person. It's, yeah. it's like, this isn't, this isn't serving you well. So I think it was just ATA does a completely different approach than, than a lot of the teaching out there, which is more of the good, good person, bad person. It's like, no, you're a person doing something adaptive or maladaptive. I think that's a, a small shift, but a very important one. I can promise you I've never had a client accuse me of being sugarcoated or, you know, <laughs> yeah. right? you know. yeah. but this need that some people have to wallow in misery mm. and confuse that with actually doing work right. is problematic. You know, I mean, it's puritanical. It, 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 it's puritanical. It's, it's hubristic. It's prideful, you know, look, you know, Dalai Lama seems like a pretty happy guy to me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I know I need to find another example. You You pointed that out to me before. (laughs) Right. But, you know, I don't see the Dalai Lama, you know, rolling around in sackcloth and ashes. Right. Talking about his pain and suffering and how awful he is. No, you can, you can grow. By being happy, you can grow by focusing on positive, as long as you're not denying the mm-hmm. ugly, mm-hmm. right? So I, I've got no time for these people who, oh, you got to suffer, you got to do that. No, yeah. life's tough enough. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously. So another use of the Enneagram that I don't agree with is to try to explain type because of what happened to you when you were a kid or how your parents raised mm-hmm. you or things like that. So I was once told that when I was exploring my type at the beginning and I came out as a seven in a test and the teacher said to me, no, you cannot be a seven because that would mean that your mother didn't pay attention to you when you were a baby. Hmm. What are you talking about? You know, Hmm. and, and I've seen a lot of that, a lot of conclusions drawn from your type and how it's caused and and that's, uh, I think, also irresponsible and not true. We don't do not know what makes us have the personality we have. Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really, really complicated. And, and I think that only people who have never had children could believe that a child becomes their personality type because of their childhood experiences. You know, I mean, it's just anybody who's ever had children and particularly more than one understands that there's a whole lot of innate going on and your children are in many many ways baked in from the moment they pop out of the womb and probably even before that and they spend most of their lives reacting to the world through the lens of their temperament you know which probably includes personality so i I just you know i I agree which doesn't mean that certain events shape the way we see the world i mean yes sure they do yeah but we probably as you say see them also through the lens of our personality anyway yes 
And the, the reality is, is that within a normal distribution of childhood environment, right? Meaning not extreme trauma, not extreme, you know, Buddha like being protected from all signs of pain and suffering that for people in the middle, it doesn't have that much impact, right? On their mm -hmm. personality and temperament. Okay. Mm -hmm. Especially parenting. Uh, there's a woman, uh, Judith Rich Harrison, Harris, I think is her name. Yes. Um, yeah, who wrote great books and did great research on how a child's friends and peers mm. actually shape who they become far yeah. more than the parents do. Okay. Now, I'm not to say assumption. Yeah, I yes. think it's one right. of the books. Yeah. And, you know, and, and one of the examples she used, you know, if, uh, you know, if, uh, the child comes from a re say they're from the South and they move to Boston and the parents have a Southern accent, that kid's not going to have a Southern accent. It's going to have a Boston mm -hmm. accent because we are wired to morph more toward potential mates and allies. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we are going to change our behaviors toward your group. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the little childhood things. It's such a a tricky subject. I mean, I, I I do think that is an interesting field that has not been explored well yet. Of like, how do we, how does one use the enneagram and just trauma, and and that how how do those relate to one another? Again, not necessarily. Do they relate to one another? Do sure is a question. Um, I mean, they have to interact at some point sure. is what i'm and so how are we defining trauma too is the other question i always ask right, in this situation right. um so i i think it's an interesting field it's a highly complicated field and no one should be doing it unless they are highly skilled <laughs> in yeah. both right yeah. and again how you uh, define trauma it's interesting because i was reading uh the descriptions in one website uh of each type and I would say that three or four out of the nine were described in the first line with the word trauma in it. So their mm. trauma is this or that. And, you know, you need to be really careful. With it. mm. yeah. It's called concept creep, right? I mean, you know, 20 years ago, what the definition of trauma was is different than what it is today. Mm. And, and, and I have no, again, I'm not making any assertions on this, I just think if we're going to have that conversation, we need to first start with defining what we mean by trauma. Right. Okay? Absolutely. And, you know, you always have to define your terms with all of these things, and then we can start to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I guess last last thing, and then we'll wrap up here. The thing I run into a lot, at least in my world, is relationships and like, what type should I marry, and all these other sort of things. That one just drives me up the wall, but. What has been your experience as I'm sure you've been asked that question as well. What's typically your, your answer? I stole Mario's answer. <laughs> okay. I say, if I knew I would be rich, I wouldn't need to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, or a, something like that. I'd have a million followers on Instagram, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it's tempting because it would sell really well, mm. you know? if you had that kind of advice for people. Mm -hmm. But you simply don't know. Some people are 
have behaviors that are more adaptive or maladaptive or have a different background or just there's no chemistry, <laughs> you know, just don't like them. So sure. it's, it's like having the skills for a job or not. You might see a seven and that's what you need for your life and no appeal mm. at all. So yeah, it's tough. It's you impossible. Darwin, when he was deciding whether or not to marry, 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 I think was her name made a list of pros and cons darwin was probably a five right so he makes his mm. list of you know reasons to marry her reasons not to and the list of reasons not to was longer than the list of reasons to but he married her anyway why because again there's just something that happens between people that says that's the one hmm. and it has nothing to do with their enneagram type and anytime you start to try and construct the ideal person that I'm looking for, you're doomed. Mm-hmm. And we all know that there are times when we're just with somebody, we say, yeah, you know what? I dig her. Right. Mm-hmm. And now, so relationships tend to happen because of some variety of factors that we don't fully understand. Pheromones is one of them. The way they smell in ways that we can't even perceive has a lot to do with attraction. Okay. It is why people wear perfumes, all this sort of stuff, right? We don't even know it. There's just, there's just something in my brain register in the way that he or she smells that I'm drawn to. Okay. Now, what's the Enneagram good for in this? Once I'm in that relationship, mm-hmm. right? Why does she keep doing that? Why does she keep saying that? Why does she think this is so important? Ah, because of her Enneagram type. Right. It's not because she's crazy. It's not because she's a bad person. It's because she's a whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we use it, or if we limit the use of that application to wants to do this, age to do that, force to do that, or don't do these things, it's not enough. I think that mm-hmm. what the Enneagram provides is a better understanding of the logic of the person so that you can communicate with them more effectively. Right. I've seen these manuals of, you know, well, here's what's going to happen when a two and a nine are in a room. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's just, and so my question is always, okay, what is that based on? Mm-hmm. So you're looking at how many different uh, variables here. Okay. Mm. What is your sample size for making those conclusions? I mean, those things are just made up. Right? Mm. based on assumptions. Now, if you come to me and say, you know what, I've studied a million couples or a thousand couples okay, of all threes and sixes, and I know for sure they're threes and sixes, and I've studied a thousand of them, and here's what the data says. Okay, well, now you got me interested. Mm-hmm. Right? But good luck. But if you don't mention that, the instinctual biases, Well, then you've got a whole other problem. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. It's just too hard. Whenever you're trying to assess these things, you know, you got to consider the possible variables and your um, your data set. Right. What's my sample size here? Mm. The rest of it's just crap that we're making up. But if I know, you know, so I'm married to a seven. Okay, so I just remind myself she's a preserving seven. And that's why she does the things that she does. Allows me to take a deep breath and not try to judge her through my navigating eight lens. Mm hmm. Okay, that's the value of the Enneagram. If you can get that done, 
Uh, here's, a, here's a final thought I want to leave with. It's another quote, right, from H.L. Mencken, the great journalist, satirist, who said, for every complex problem, there's an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. Um, <laughs> and so anytime we find ourselves grabbing for simple answers about people, really, really complicated creatures, mm-hmm. we're probably wrong. And on that note, um, <laughs> thanks for listening to another episode, or, or rather just a rant. Uh, thanks for listening to our rant. <laughs> Don't forget uh, to tip the waiters and waitresses. I'll be back yeah. here next Friday. <laughs> That's great. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast. 